Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we're speaking with Laura Jaramillo, CEO and co-founder of Sona, about helping artists build a more sustainable revenue, designing fail-proof protocol incentives, and using music to onboard the next billion users to crypto. Like many of us, Laura's journey into crypto was a winding one with many seemingly mismatched pieces that somehow all came together and are contributing to her work now at Sona. After turning down a deal from a major record label at age 16 to become the next Shakira, Laura decided to pursue furniture design at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which eventually led her into product and protocol design and designing what is now Sona, a platform to help musicians monetize their music in a different way. We do a couple of deep dives in this episode, the first one on how to build a sustainable revenue for artists by implementing crypto and DeFi primitives into a music streaming service, and the second on how to design the most effective incentives for a protocol that's resistant to spam bots and token miners. We also talk about her new project, Sona, the super random convoluted way she met her co-founder, Tokimonsta, and Laura and I have a full circle moment when I finally realized while we were chatting during the recording that a party I had attended almost a year ago during Art Basel was in fact a party put on by Laura and Tokimonsta to celebrate one year of their meeting and the birth of Sona. If you're a musician or a creator of any kind, or if you have any interest in the creator economy from any angle, you'll really enjoy this episode. Also, be sure to check out our show notes for a link to get exclusive access to Sona before they launch to the public. Laura was nominated by HTML Tina and voted onto the podcast by Tina, Jimmy Chain, Reka, Andy Boyan, and D-Thinks. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Laura. Hey, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Congrats on being our first place winner on the season's joke race. The most number of people wanted you on the podcast. So kudos to you for that. I'm so happy that you're here and so glad to meet you and have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tina, for nominating me. Shout out to Tina. So I actually don't usually start most podcasts with this question anymore. But I know that you have a really interesting background, or so Tina has told me, and it's a bit non-traditional, and there's a lot of different elements at play that kind of build up to what you're working on today and explain a lot of the reasons why you're doing what you're doing today. So I would love to hear a little bit about your background. You can start as far back as you want. All right. (laughs) You're going to throw it all the way back. Wow. So I guess the best way to start is... My life has made me a really huge advocate and believer in the fact that everything happens for a reason because there are just too many of these little like magical coincidence moments along the way and learning moments along the way. So really, really excited to share that Sona, right, ultimately is a platform for musicians to help them monetize off their music in a different way. So they have freedom to create in the way that they want to or create without compromise. And all that really comes from my mom, who is a musician and an activist in Puerto Rico, huge, huge fan of hers growing up. She was like the strongest and still is the strongest woman that I know. And also someone who would never be one to become like a brand type musician or someone to charge a ton for her shows. She's someone that makes incredibly valuable music and important music and music that moves nations. But 
for some reason, right, in this current economy, can't survive off of the things that she does, the things of value that she brings to the world, really. So when I was younger, obviously, I looked up to her so much. I wanted to be a musician, too. So when I was in high school, I was full and had my own jazz band, was a singer-songwriter, competed on behalf of Puerto Rico. And then I got offered a label deal. Yeah, I was 16 years old. And they essentially wanted me to drop out of high school, move to L.A. and become a Latin pop star. But my music was the opposite of that. My music was Simon and Garfunkel, Joan Baez, very singer-songwriter, sad girl. And I saw even at 16, I was like, wow, they don't want me to be me. They don't want me to do me. They want to take my art and package it in what they think works best. So I left music behind commercially and went into design, which is one of those turning moments where I was like, okay, everything happens for a reason because I ended up studying furniture design at Brown and RISD. I did their crazy dual degree program, but discovered product design while you're doing furniture design because the wood shop and the metal shop felt like they were made for bodies that weren't my own. So I turned to the digital space. It was around that time that I also started doing some educational design materials for this blockchain company called BitBuddy that helped people learn about, again, everything happening for a reason. I have this Mom struggling to make ends meet as a musician and activist. I'm learning product design and now I'm learning about the blockchain all in like 2015 to 2020. When I graduated, graduated into the pandemic with two degrees that I couldn't quite use. I had a gender studies and urban studies degree from Brown and a furniture design degree from RISD. So I basically took any job I could and I was juggling about six of them at the time. Graphic design, product design, I did some work for Design Within Reach for a bit. It was a really eclectic, crazy moment. But in that period, I got approached by a woman that I TA'd when I was at RISD, who that year had been one of the co-founders of this company called Upshot. And they were looking to expand their product team. And I had recently rebranded to a product designer. So she reached out to her old team. She's like, hey, I'm building on a team in this thing on the blockchain. And we work with these things called NFTs. And this was pre-NFT boom. And I was like, is there healthcare? Is there a salary? I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. And thankfully, I already knew sort of what the blockchain was. I had done that work for that education company. So very, very quickly climbed the ranks to like head of product and design at Upshot and that exposed me to a lot of other founders in the space, joined friends with Benefits DAO. I started their hackathon series. So a lot of those culture meets crypto companies that we know today were actually incubated there. And I, I tried to be a resource to all of these folks coming in that had these incredible backgrounds, incredible ideas, but had no idea how to apply it with the tools at their disposal because crypto is really bad with SEO. Like no one has a definitive source of truth of what's happening here. You have to learn through conversation. And I wanted to be a resource for people that didn't have any access to those conversations and help them understand that if the tool doesn't exist, you can probably build it. So that's sort of my background and how I got into crypto and my general upbringing and happy to dive into Sona and Toki and all that good stuff. I don't know how many of you know this about me, but my path to podcasting and Web3 was actually quite nonlinear. From being a lawyer to a travel blogger to a podcaster and so many other little things in between. 
Because of this convoluted journey, I've always struggled with how to tell my full story via traditional means like a resume or LinkedIn bio. And I always felt there was so much context missing from these mediums that probably left any potential client or employer reading it totally confused about who I am or what I can offer. So while I absolutely love certain aspects of being self-employed, like being my own boss and being able to set my own schedule, there are other aspects that have been a constant source of frustration, like the fact that existing apps and tooling don't seem to be built for self-employed people at all. That's why I'm so excited about Quest, a new platform that lets me record all of my contributions on-chain, decide which projects I want to showcase, and take control of my professional identity. To follow along with our rehash quests and check out my profile, you can sign up at quest.com slash DC so you never miss an episode and create your own quest profile today. I think the piece that stands out the most to me is your music upbringing with your mother being a musician and then yourself being a musician as well. And I guess my first question is, how did you have this sense even at age 16 that what you were being asked to do by the record label was not true and authentic to yourself and therefore not something you wanted to do because i think especially at that age a lot of people would think wow dream come true a record label recognizes me they see me i'll do whatever they want me to do not only to further my career but also like they're the adults in the room they're the professionals in the right. room they must know the right way to approach this. And so I trust them with that. But how did you have the sense that that wasn't right? At least that wasn't right for you and what you wanted to do and what you believed in for yourself. Right. So the music that I made and what I loved the most about writing and the most about performing was actually the effect it had on like the older generation that came to listen to my music. So we had these weekly open mics that I'd play at and people would travel from around the island to come hear these very specific songs that like for old women who had lost their partners they would request that one song about grief and I knew reading the deal one that I would never own my writing ever again it was very obvious when they were pitching the deal to me that they wanted me to become the next Shakira that was their vision for me and I was more passionate about music for healing or music for closure or catharsis. And I was worried that if all my energy was in building this fake persona, this hypersexualized persona of me, I would never be able to see music the same way again. I'd never be able to write music the same way again. And I certainly wouldn't be making music for the people who I thought were the people I made music for. So it, it wasn't too hard for me to turn that down, even though it was really disheartening. Because they do sort of make you believe that that's your big break. And I mean, at that moment, I knew. And also, having been in this industry now for a bit and working in it, that it's a double-edged sword. It's access, it's capital, but it also isn't freedom. There's a big disconnect between values, right? The value that you can bring to other people through your music versus the value that the record label saw you providing to people. And I think any founder can relate to this as well, where I think a lot of founders feel like there might be a disconnect in value between what they can offer versus what the VCs who they need to rely on for that capital wants from them. So this isn't just a problem that's unique to artists or to the creative field, but really to society in general. I, I know something that you've thought about a lot and talked about a lot, and I, I wonder if you could verbalize this for our listeners is 
how do you help people realize the value that artists provide? Because again, maybe this is like a capitalism society kind of mentality, but we think that if something doesn't pay well, like if a job doesn't pay well, then it's not valuable, right? And so we see, for example, a doctor or a lawyer providing more value than an artist or a musician. And I I feel like this starving artist trope has furthered that way of thinking. So how can we help people understand the the value and the amount of value and the amount of labor that goes into what artists do as well? Yeah, I mean, you brought up some really great points. And I think even calling back to your earlier statement, right, about how MEC will try and capture or see the value in a startup or a founder or an idea. They have a very specific way of understanding value accrual or understanding like how things are done. And what, what I had to build with Sona was a new way, in my opinion, to capture how a society values music and share that value with the people that create the music proportional to how much the music is enjoyed. And right now, the way that people are capturing the value of music consumption is through a, a subscription service, right? We all pay what we feel is a nominal price per month to have access to all the music in the world. That takes out the emotional element to our relationship to music. It takes out the ability for us to back musicians more powerfully or more intentionally. So with Sona instead, what we're trying to capture is both that emotional connection that people have with artists and wanting to back them, and also that piece of human nature that is excited about speculating on things that we have high conviction on. There are very few things that people have higher conviction on than their taste in music, and Sona tries to capture the dollar amount for that, the dollar amount for our support for musicians, and then find a way to really equitably redistribute that value to the artists that make it possible, and then also to the patrons and collectors that make that possible. So that we're incentivizing not only the creation of music, but also the supporting of the creators of music. So that's a little bit of a shift, right? Because it's no longer we're going to charge everyone for access to everything. People will offer up what they're willing to put in to back the people they love or the music they love. People will put in what they're willing to put in to speculate on the success of a sound. And at the end of the day, right, I think we have a much more compelling outline of how a society might value music. I want to dive deeper into the business model and how that works for sure. But I want to back up for a second and just talk about how we got here. Before streaming, if I wanted to listen to music, I had to go out and buy a CD. And once the internet came around, you could use LimeWire and stuff to like pirate music that you're not paying for and all of that was seen as illegal and really bad to not pay artists to consume their music but over time how did we get from that state to now where we pay 9.99 a month or something for access to all the music in the world and we don't feel bad about that can you walk us through how we've progressed over time and ended up where we are today in this really detrimental state for artists and then how Sona is solving some of those problems that we're faced with today. Right. I mean, so in essence, and I think this might have been quoted a few times, but the Spotify founder has come out a few times in the wake of people complaining about Spotify being so terrible for artists is that Spotify was never designed to pay artists well. Spotify was designed to keep people from pirating music, but they never imagined that streaming would completely take over 
a market where people were paying for music directly. So it, it introduced a new paradigm for how people consume music. And ultimately, what Sona recognizes or what I recognize is that you can't backpedal that. You can't bring people back to an era of paying for a CD or paying for a song. That's why I'm not super jazzed on like companies or protocols that gate music discovery, because ultimately it's really hard to imagine that people will pay to listen to a song on the other side if they don't know the artist. So now you're basically paywalling discovery, which I don't think is what musicians want. And back in the CD era, we had the radio where your music was enjoyed and consumed for free. And that was a way that artists' music was proliferated and was such an important piece of an artist's journey. And now that doesn't exist. So now both the CD and the radio are the streaming platform while also taking away what was valuable about both. Because now the discovery isn't free and the support isn't targeted and the top 1% of artists are always going to be good and the long tail and the medium tail are falling deeper and deeper behind. Something to point out with Sona is I was like, okay, if we can't bring people back to an era of paying for music, let's find a way to make music discovery being free a positive for an artist. Make a sustainable model around that and just push it all the way over the edge while creating a new mechanism where value can accrue for a musician. Yeah. So explain a little more in detail how it works on Sona. So it sounds like music discovery is free. So I can go on Sona and discover any artist that has uploaded their music there without paying anything. And then where does the the payment part come in? And then how do artists receive that money as well? Totally. So every song on Sona that's been minted to Sona or published on Sona earns proportional protocol rewards and USTC proportional to how much it was streamed. So if, if your song's super popular and you got 1% of all the streams on the Sona platform or network, you'd receive 1% of the transaction fee pool or the reward pool. And those rewards or those transaction fees are coming from the marketplace where an artist can sell a Sona to a collector or sell a song to a collector. And the only thing that they're selling in that moment is access to 70% of what that song is earning from Sona in the future. So now Sona's created these two new revenue streams for artists. You have every two weeks these streaming rewards or protocol rewards coming in in USDC. And if an artist needs upfront capital, working on a new project, has someone that really wants to support their you know career more deeply, they also have access to this marketplace component where they can sell a song. And now they're sharing that reward with their biggest supporters while protecting their IP. So an artist doesn't have to sell their existing royalties, their existing revenue streams. It's this parallel to that, which is what's so important to us is that an artist's art and work and IP is protected. Now collectors and artists are incentivized to bring people to come listen to this music that they've either published or collected. Listeners get to discover music completely for free. And the curator's role in all this is extremely important because we want to help really good collectors find really good artists that might be at the beginning of their careers that need the most support or at least will feel the most from a Sona collection. That's basically how it works. We take a little bit off of every sale out of all these people saying, I believe in this song, I believe in this artist, I believe in this music. We pull it all and then every two weeks we say thank you to the collectors and send artists some sustainable revenue so they can keep the lights on. Amazing. And then what about curators? Do they get paid for curating 
playlists. Right. To start, it's like, right, there's no social music listening app. And that's very intentional because if the way Spotify makes money is you come to Spotify for Spotify's playlists, you go to Spotify for Spotify's curation. If we found out that Spotify's playlist and curation was actually like Diana, you could go listen to Diana's playlist on SoundCloud. Why on earth would you pay for Spotify? Or you'd go to your playlist compilation on YouTube. Why would you pay for Spotify? So all this user-generated content is completely squashed on the DSPs for a very good reason, for their bottom line. And ultimately, there is no space for music curation. There's no social space for music curation. So Sona's consumer play is, here's a place where you can build a following as a music curator. Here's a place where it is designed around you showing off your taste. And now for the artists of the world who used to have to go through the payolas or pay to get their song listened to by a Spotify employee, instead they can reach out to their local house DJ or local house curator, say, hey, give us a listen. Both of their reputations are at stake, right? The curator's like, I'm only going to curate good music because my name is on this. But at least there's a person for the artist to reach out to. And to your point about compensating and rewarding curation, that is absolutely on the roadmap and something that we want to introduce the moment there's stability in the protocol, basically proportional to the impact that you have on the artist that you curate, the protocol would send a reward. So everything that supports the ecosystem in some way is rewarded by the ecosystem in turn. Can you explain the protocol piece of this? Like, why is Sona a protocol and not just an app? Totally. A big piece of this is that I want Sona and the protocol to eventually be this bedrock or foundation of what equitable value capture and redistribution for the creator economy can be. And the only way we do that is if, one, we have many different access points, many different ways of consuming, as many different entry points to this ecosystem as possible, so that we're not only capturing as much value to redistribute, but we're also not dictating how that music should be consumed or how that music should be curated. We can only control one front end to this protocol. And I don't think that we should live in a world where there's one overarching music streaming platform that everyone turns to. I want a world where there's like a jazz specific protocol where people can turn to or potentially have someone like Adele Finance come in and make super fancy primitives for artists to leverage their music in DeFi, which is something that hasn't been possible before. But when we talk about bringing real world assets on chain, imagine finally putting a value to the intangible value of music. And now you're equipping all these artists with something to better their situation and to take advantage of all these amazing things that we've built. So why it's a protocol is because I deeply believe in decentralization and I deeply believe in building a positive sum foundation for music. And we can only really do that if we build it open and build a decentralized and build a protocol. Going off of that note and tying that in with your background in product design, when you are thinking about designing a protocol which is so much more, I think. I mean, have you designed a protocol before or is this your first time? I've sketched protocols before. So I'm one of those that like love puzzles of problems and will sit down and design okay. myself with you. Okay, so I assume most people listening who have some experience with design maybe have experience with app design, but protocol design, to me at least in my head, seems like a much different thing. So when you're starting to design a protocol, where do you even begin? Like, what are the core principles that you personally rely on or generally you should rely on when designing a protocol? And I know something that you've talked about before is 
this idea of a generous protocol. And I love to hear more about what that means. Right. So the generous protocol piece is really hearkening to the way that the protocol is designed is you're rewarded for the thing that you naturally want to do. So when I set about to design a protocol, the basic principles that I turn to is you need a flywheel of incentives in order for this to work, right? It's this trustless machine, but it's only going to work if every cog in it wants to move and then wants to kick off and ignite the next piece. So for me, it's a massive puzzle of incentive design and incentive alignment. Building a protocol at the end of the day is figuring out what are the different pieces that need to move in order to reach whatever ends you want. Here it's value creation or generation, right? And what are the different actors that you could plug into those roles? And what do these actors naturally want to do? With Sona, for example, you have artist who wants to create music and make money off their music. You have collector slash patron who wants to support artists and make money off of music. You have curators who want to curate music and be recognized for it. You have listeners who want to listen for free, potentially. And all these different pieces work together so that as each person is doing what they want to do, they're basically calling in the next step and incentivized to bring in the next step and incentivized to bring in the next player so that there's no forcing happening from the protocol. I think you see a lot of products, a lot of consumer crypto, a lot of any consumer products, really, that ask people to learn new behaviors to make it make sense. And my deep belief is it's really hard to get people to, to take different actions or change their behavior. It's a lot easier to map behavior that they're already doing naturally onto something that you want to build and leverage that already existing behavior to your advantage. That makes a lot of sense. I'm just trying to think of examples of how that plays out because a lot of times, at least in the crypto space with how incentives are baked into protocols, it leads to a lot of spam bots and a lot of people that are in it for the rewards, but don't really care about what you're doing. It's kind of like you want to game the rewards, get all your friends to listen to this song. And then <laughs> yeah. suddenly you're earning more rewards. And now the art is great. Like I have 10 new fans because they've all been streaming my music to the ground. Or an artist even saying, oh, I need more money. I'm going to sell another Sona, right? And Mouse Clock is like, great, I have this hot new track that I can collect. Literally, the ways that you would game the system are things that ultimately help an artist. If we're talking about curation, when we introduce curation rewards, if you curate really good playlists, you're going to get rewarded for it. You're going to want to curate even better playlists. And I think I actually drew a lot of inspiration from Uniswap because it was like, okay, you had people that needed to trade X for Y token. And it was really hard. So Hayden comes around and he's like, okay, we're going to take this behavior that people already do and they already want. And we're going to take this want that people have, which is to make money off of their sitting capital. I'm going to align those two actions, align those two incentives and create something that incentivizes people not only to trade here, but incentivizes people to provide liquidity for this action that people want to take. And now you have this beautiful symbiotic relationship between both sides of that ecosystem. I think it's one of the most beautiful protocols out there. It's just very specifically crypto.
Before starting Rehash, I was a solo creator for many years, and I often felt disconnected and lonely despite doing something I loved. With Rehash, I was seeking more connection and set out to create a community-generated podcast. Since then, I've made genuine connections with community members and fans by co-creating the show. That's why I'm so excited about Lore's launch on Base. Lore is an all-in-one platform for communities to bring their members and their funds on-chain. From there, communities hang out in a forum, crowdsource decisions, and make transactions together. Now, it's easier than ever to fund and co-create media initiatives like Rehash. Go to lore.xyz to kickstart your community initiative today. The same principle underlies Uniswap as underlies Sona, even though they're in such different spaces. Is that also what you're talking about when you say that we need to have empathy when designing protocols? Like put yourself in the shoes of a user of this protocol. Think about what they would want, what they would need. And then that's what your incentives should be. Exactly. It's like, what would you want out of an app? What would you want out of something that's related to music as X, Y, and Z person? You can even use personas and then make it super indulgent and just make those indulgent behaviors positive for the protocol. Can you think of a good example in the Web2 world of a protocol or even an app that does a good job of baking incentives into their app? Or do you think that this is one of those things that's uniquely <laughs> enabled by crypto and that we haven't really seen in the traditional world? Oh, that's such a good point. I think it is very much unique in the way that value can be created and redistributed, right? It's very different from potentially like more clout accrual, right? Like you have the network effects of Twitter leveraging people's personalities to grow Twitter. And as Twitter grows, now your audience on Twitter means more, but it's not benefiting the user at the end of the day. It's a very artificial benefit, right? Where we've been convinced that our social followings are important and therefore we give our content and our energy for those followings, which ends up being net positive for the network. But the difference here is that that value never sees the creator. I think TikTok's been trying, right? They've got their creator fund. Instagram has their creator fund. But it's those businesses and those business models just don't work the same way. And I think that's what's so exciting about Web3 and the promise of blockchain tech. Or something else that comes to mind for me is even like a basic rewards program at like a coffee shop, for example, where they give you a punch card. And then once you get 10 punches, you get a free drink or something like that. Or an invitation code. Yeah. Do you think that's a good example of properly des designed incentives of this is something that people are going to do anyway? And so let's just give them a free punch every time they come in and do this thing they're going to do anyway. And then they get some kind of benefit at the end of it. Exactly. It's like, let's take that behavior they already do. Let's reward them so they continue doing that behavior here. Yeah, because I mean, if there's two coffee shops on my block and one of them has a reward system and the other one doesn't and the coffee tastes about the same to me, then I'll probably go to the one that has a punch card. There was this crazy, speaking of coffee, crazy coffee startup in my college or near my college that offered free coffee or free drinks to students. But the catch was that you would have to put your info, your data into this student database that companies could pay to get access to to basically meet you at the coffee shop for an interview. So you would have these startups that wanted to 
hire kids in Brown, go pay and subsidize for these coffees so they could get access to the database of students that were going through that coffee shop while the kids got coffee for free. Interesting model. Maybe if they'd set it up close to Harvard, it would have done better. But that's a great example of aligned incentives and incentive design. I think I would have been cool with that as a student as long as I knew my data was Oh, dude, I never signed up. I also didn't want spam from all these companies trying to offer me an internship. Yeah. (laughs) Something else I was going to ask you about, and we kind of jumped ahead and talked about Sona already, but I was going to ask you about the origin story of Sona and how you met your (laughs) co-founder, Toki Monsta, which I actually have a funny story real quick about how I came to hear about Toki Monsta. And I didn't even realize that you guys were co-founders because I knew she was a like a DJ and an artist. And I didn't realize she had a company as well. And so it wasn't until I was doing research for this podcast episode that I was like, wait, the co-founder of Sona is Toki Monsta. And the funny quick story about how I heard about Toki Monsta at first is I was at Art Basel in Miami last year. And my friend, Stefan Delvo, I don't know if you know him, but he's like big in the rehash community as well. He was a guest on the podcast in a previous season. He was like, come out to this party, whatever, like me and Scott Moore and people are here. And I show up and I'm like, okay, I'm here. There's a long line. He's like, okay, be right there. He comes out with this stack of wristbands, pulls me to like the back (laughs) alley and like, here, put on this wristband and pretend you already had it on and then we can get you in. And I was like, okay. And then later (laughs) I was like, where did you get this from? Like, is this your party? He's like, no, no, it's not my party. We ran into this girl. She said her name's Toki Monsta or something. This is her event or something. And she gave us a stack of wristbands. And then I like looked her up and checked out her music and stuff. Dante's. Yeah, Dante. Exactly. Oh my God. That was were you there too? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, we were there with De La Soul. That was the Sona party, the rewire party. (laughs) Oh, okay. I still to this day did not realize what the party was. Other than Toki Monsta had something to do with it. That's so good. That's so good. It was like a one-year anniversary party of Toki and I meeting because, well, it was more than that, but that's what that party ended up feeling like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me about how you guys met in the first place. Right, so speaking of one-year anniversary, Jen and I were both flying to Miami from L.A. Which, by the way, Toki Monsta's Monsta's (laughs) real name is Jennifer Jen Lee. Oh, yes, Jennifer Lee, indeed. I'm Toki, Toki Jen, Jen, Jennifer, Toki Monsta. Okay. (laughs) My my work wife and work sister. So we were both on the way to Art Basel from L.A. And she was sitting behind me and I had no idea who Toki Monsta was or who Jen was. But obviously everyone on this flight headed to Miami early December was going to Art Basel. Yeah. And there was this geriatric couple. And I'm so sorry, Jerry and Fern, but geriatric couple sitting next to Jen who were really chatty and trying to get like everyone in the plane into a conversation about like (laughs) what parties they were going to like i'm trying to sleep it's a lot and jen could see from behind right because i was sitting in front of her she could see me from behind i was finalizing the guest list for the friends with benefits party she turns to jerry and fern and she's like looks like she has a party and I was like, oh, yeah, we thought we have a party, the friends of the party. And then they were like, we really want to go to that. That sounds really cool. And I was like sitting there trying to figure out how do I ask Jerry and Fern if they have a MetaMask or a Rainbow Wallet to acquire the tokens necessary to apply to this right. fucking event. 
And I'm like, this isn't going to work. I did say, like, do you have rainbow? Anyway, Jen kind of, like, coaxed it more and was like, Laura, you should, or she didn't even know my name. She was like, yeah. you should put them on the list. And I was like, I put Jerry and Fern on the FWB guest list. And she tweeted about it. So now there's a tweet flying around about how the, Jerry and Fern are on the FWB guest list and Toki wants to make it happen. And then Jerry and Fern turn their attention to Toki. And they're like, and what do you do, young lady? And she's like, well, I'm, you know, DJ producer. You might have heard of me. Toki wants to They're like, no, we haven't heard of you, but we're going to ask our fam. We're going to ask our niece two minutes later. Oh, my God. Our niece loves you. You're Toki Monsa. We want to hear some of your music. So anyway, I reply tweet her saying like, oh, how the turntable, right? Like now you got yeah. Jerry and Fern on you. And at some point, Trevor McFedries, who founded FWB and was also really good friends with Toki, realized we were on the same plane, tweeting back and forth at each other. And he would texted both of us individually. He's like, you two would be friends. You should hang out. Glad that the universe has brought yeah. you together. Wow. You know, go crazy. <laughs> So from that moment on, Jen and I kept running into each other at a bunch of crypto parties. And usually we'd find ourselves at the end of the night in the corner looking at everybody in the room like, what is going on here? <laughs> One day I've been sitting around doing some of those protocol sketch design and I designed two different protocols, one for lyricists and writers and one that was the kernel idea for Sona. And I tweeted super cryptically on Twitter. I was like, imagine music NFTs, but... Without selling your IP or coming up with perks and benefits for your collectors. And Jen texts me and she's like, tell me more. And I was like, okay, let's hop on a call. And I showed her both of the sketches because I was like, well, you're a musician. Like, what does this feel like for you? And she's like, this one could work. She was like, this one I could see being super helpful for me. I could see being super helpful for the artists on my label. How can I help you make this happen? Put this in the world. And I was like, well... You give my co-founder. And she was like, all right. We started taking investor call after investor call. Funnily enough, Polychain was actually recruiting me at the time to be, I think, a design operator for them. Turned down that because like, I got to go save the world. I got to go help musicians. And they were like, oh, well, we want to work with you anyway. So they ended up bleeding our seed round back in April 2022. <laughs> That's almost the best way to get an investor on board is like they already know you. They already wanted to hire you. So they respect your work. I mean, you just skip so many steps and getting them to sign up. Exactly. They're like, she's going to build something good, probably. Or at least we hope. Now I understand why Tina wanted me to ask you that story, because that's <laughs> such a cool story of how you met Toki Monster. Wow. She's, and I can't believe I was at your one year party. I know. I know. Well, we were doing kind of like a... Before that big night party, we had this little wellness house where artists, musicians could come by, have a sound bath, like a respite from the craziness. But obviously, like, we like dancing. So we reached out to Dante. We were like, let's do it. That makes so much more sense because my friends who were there, I was like, yeah, I'm down to hang out after this dinner thing I have. Just something chill, though. And they're like, yeah, for sure. I'm looking for something chill. And then they invite me to this thing. And I, <laughs> we can't even like talk to each other because it's so loud with the music going on inside. And I was like, this is the chill thing, huh? And it was so crowded, which props to you guys. You got so many people there, but it was like jam packed in Dante's. Yeah, dude. I mean, if we do anything well, it's certainly events and event production. One of the folks on my team used to do 
special events for the Black IP back in the day. He recently told me that he threw the party for, what was it, like the Mars rover or for NASA? What? Yeah, for the guy. Shout out to Lewis. Incredible manager and A&Rist. Wow. Very excited. Very excited to bring those back. Full circle. All right. Well, last question for you. This is one from the community. People submitted their ideas for questions. And then the top three are the ones that I'm going to read to you. And I'll let you pick one of those to answer. So the first one is submitted by Meg Lister, and this is the spiciest one and the one that I secretly hope (laughs) all of our guests will choose. The question is, what's your favorite crypto drama? And tell us about it. So that's the first question. The second one, also submitted by Meg Lister, is who would you invite onto the podcast next season? And then the third question is from Flappy Abe. It's Estimate your success rate and your attempts to crypto pill your off-chain friends and family members. Paint me a word picture of your average attempt. Oh, I mean, as much as I love those first two questions, maybe I'll answer that first one in like a reply tweet or something. But in terms of painting the picture, right, like the whole point of Sona is that someone should be able to use the the app, the product, and never even know they're engaging with crypto or Web3 or blockchain. So the picture I paint is, do you like music? Do you like streaming music? Do you want to stream it for free? Stream it on Sona. (laughs) And then we've already introduced a new user to the ecosystem that has this happy trail to becoming a collector, to becoming an artist, to becoming a curator. So hopefully more people learn that we've got too much of the back end on the front end in crypto. And we really won when we found a way to make it indistinguishable from what to. What has been the response when you talk to people with no background in crypto about Sona? Are people instantly like, hell yeah, sign me up? Or do people have questions? Or people like, how does this work? How can this be possible? Like, we've been starving artists for decades. (laughs) How can this suddenly change? Right, right. So from the artist side, huge excitement because they're always looking for new revenue streams. They're always looking for ways to engage their biggest fans. And the opportunity to share their success with their fans without cutting into their revenues and royalties massive so that's the very easy sell they're also really excited about the opportunity the decentralized curation that piece of reaching out to your local curator instead of a playlister at an unnamed company massive in terms of the listener and the curator they're excited about a space to discover music through their friends discover music through tastemakers curators djs and have a place to home their followings there and home their taste in a more meaningful way and also know that even though they're streaming for free, they're still helping artists more by streaming there. And on the collector side, one, we did really early user testing and we found that people were willing to pay up to $500 for a song on Sona without even knowing that the song would earn them any revenue. They were like, I just really like this artist. I really like this song. I want to buy this song. And we'd be like, oh, do you know what owning a song on Sona means? And they're like, I don't care. And then once you tell them, like, you'll actually earn revenue as people listen to the song in Sona, and they're like, oh, my God, really? I'm like a small label? <laughs> That's sick. It's been a really exciting opportunity to, like, show people the magic of Web3 and the magic of crypto and using music as a Trojan horse to teach people, like, very, very simple DeFi primitives that I think once they understand through the lens of music, they might be able to superimpose on other sectors and superimpose on other apps and actions that we're trying to get people to take in Web3. So hopefully Sona can help with that massive undertaking that is onboarding the next 1 billion users. But I think we only get there if the crypto's on the back end and people don't know they're doing something on the blockchain and instead they're doing something that feels magic. They don't question yeah. it. 
they just keep doing it. Totally agree. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. We need to reduce the barriers of entry for the masses to engage with crypto apps and protocols. And I don't know why that's such a difficult thing. I think it's just because the people building in this space are very insular in their communities. It's hard to get perspective when the community you live in, everybody is on the same page as you. Everybody knows crypto. Everybody has a MetaMask, knows how to engage with these apps. It's hard to get into the heads of somebody who doesn't live in that community. And so then you're just building for the people you know, which are all crypto native people. And that's just not the reality of what the world looks like. Totally. We got to get people out of Williamsburg. Well, I, I love I love this conversation I recently had with a VC where we were like setting out to raise a few months ago and they were like, no, we're really only doing infrastructure right now. And in the back of my head, I was like, that's a lot of block space for like the same 10,000 users. I didn't say that out loud, but recently I've been on a call with the same investor. They turn around and they say, you know, we're really looking at consumer these days because we realize that investing in infrastructure was just a weird play considering it's a whole lot of block space for the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to say told you so, but uh, told you so. Literally. So yeah. hopefully hopefully people can get out of their, their echo chambers. And I think we're starting to see trends up that direction. Yeah. yeah, we're getting there. All right. Well, last thing, Laura, before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally and then also where people can go to check out Sona. I think by the time the podcast goes out, we'll probably be in beta. So you'll be able to sign up. I'll be sure to send you some invite codes so you can send them to your community. Oh, yes, please. Yes, yes, yes. All, all, all the rehash community. But you can find me on Twitter, Laura TJD. Sona is at Sona Stream. And to find us online, we're just Sona.stream. Perfect. We will include all of that in the show notes to make it easy for people. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Quest and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on Lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.